Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, quantitative investing and mismatches in the labor market. We will also discuss long-short funds, how we should view risk, and incorporating big data in investing. That's with our guest, Harinda Silva, Portfolio Manager at Analytic Investors at Wells Fargo Asset Management and the Portfolio Manager at 361 Global Long Short. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. What are we watching for at the moment? Well, we are recording this in mid-July and the markets are off to another good start this month as they have been. Over the last year, the stock market is up over 40%. The average stock in the US market is up over 60%. So it's been a great time to be an investor. Today was also a day inflation data came out and it's generating a lot of headlines. Consumer price index had its biggest headline increase in a dozen years. Over the last six months, the change in inflation has been the strongest since the early 80s. And so the inflation is sort of the big topic, even though the markets, at least today, have sort of shrugged it off. Well, I also want to ask you about the labor market. There seems to be sort of a disconnect in the number of available jobs. The latest, I believe, is 9 million in the U.S. and the number of people unemployed. There's about 3 million at last report. So what do you think is happening there that 3 million people are still unable to find employment? And what needs to happen to fill those 9 million vacancies? Oh, you like giving me these kind of questions, don't you? I sure do. Well, <laughs> let's see. First of all, of course, it's much easier to shut down an economy than reopen it. So there's not perfect mobility. There's jobs out there, but obviously the, the people just aren't there to fill those jobs. I think it's also a function of incentives and kind of disincentives in the marketplace. But I think the important thing for investors to remember is that when it comes to employment data, it is it's almost the ultimate lagging indicator. When the employment data is great, generally speaking, the forward returns for the market are below average. And when the employment data is subpar, it's usually, generally speaking, it's still a good time to be an investor. So when it comes to quantitative data like this, we have an expert on our podcast today. So let's dive into some quantitative investing with our guest. That's right. Well, let's bring him in. Haran DeSilver is Portfolio Manager at Analytic Investors in California. Haran, welcome to The Weighing Machine. Hi, Robin. Hi, Rusty. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, well, it's great to have you. Well, before we get started, I'm going to throw it over to you, Rusty, for our traditional opening question. Well, Haran, I know you're a music buff, so this should be a fun question for you. And the question is, what is your walk-up song? You're about ready to come on the show here. The anticipation is high. People want to hear that song in the background. What is that song in the background? For me, that would be Mike Goldfield, Tubular Bells. Are you familiar with that? I am not. You've got me. <laughs> I think you've stumped Rusty. That's a first. I... <laughs> yeah. So this is a song that, I'm, first of all, I love the melody. It came out in the early 70s. Most of you probably remember it because it was the theme song for The Exorcist. Oh, mm. so we've heard it. We just didn't recognize you heard it. You just didn't recognize the song, but it was. We recognize the a, face, but not the name, sort of thing. 
Yeah, but I love the I love the music, but it was an amazing recording because it was done by Michael Oldfield when he was 19 years old. There's 243 tracks on the song. They're all played by him. Wow. He basically took tip recorder, removed the erase head and recorded over and over again. So it was a very creative way to make a recording. But nobody wanted to sell this recording because there was no vocals. And the only person who took this track on, it was a 23-minute track, was a, the gentleman who founded Virgin Records. Wow. He was willing to take that risk. So this is actually the first record ever released by Virgin. Whoa. And Mike Oldfield has a lifetime pass on Virgin Airlines as a result. So he flies <laughs> anywhere first class for free because it was so successful. So to me, the, the song, apart from the melody, the song re represents kind of innovation and creativity in a way that music you know, should represent. Wow, that was a slam dunk of an answer. It was. I think that's our most thoughtful response we've had. <laughs> and we've had some pretty thoughtful answers too. That was great. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right. Well, good start. Okay. Well, Heron, you have been at Analytic Investors since I believe 1995. And before that, you were a principal at Analysis Group. Can you tell us more about your work at Analytic and how you got into the investing industry? Well, before I joined Analytic, I was a consultant in the investment industry. So I used to help investors pick money managers or pick investment managers. And I realized that often you could explain investment performance through factor returns. In other words, there was always a common characteristic that described investment performance. So I think I'm not a fundamentalist. I like to think of myself as a factor mentalist. You know, I believe that factors drive everything and you can capture common themes through factors. And I had this idea for building a stock selection model that was centered around factors. And that was my role when I first joined Analytic was to build an equity strategy that was factor driven. When I started talking to people about factors, what, 25 years ago, often the response was kind of a quizzical look. Now it's much easier to talk about factors. Factor investing is kind of the rage. Smart beta investing is commonly accepted. So it's been fun to watch the change, but I'm a big believer in that type of investing. And I think it's a change that's really helped investors understand what drives return, but also how to structure portfolios to benefit from different factors. Well, you also manage the 361 Global Long Short Fund. Can you describe what a long short fund is and how is 361 different from other long short funds? Well, long short funds are, I guess, relatively unusual. You know, the first long short fund was developed by A.W. Jones in the, in the 40s. And he had this idea that if you include a portfolio of stocks where you're short, you're actually going to protect the portfolio in market declines. And so that's the reason we have in our portfolio for every $100 that somebody invests, we have $100 in long stocks, so stocks we own, and $30 in stocks that we're short. So that basically reduces the volatility of the portfolio. And most importantly, allows us to profit from stocks that are overvalued at any point. And if you think about human behavior, we're really geared towards identifying things to buy we're not geared towards identifying things to sell, things that are overvalued. So that part of the market is really untapped from alpha standpoint. And that's why we think a short portfolio 
of stocks has a really good role in managing risk in, over, in the portfolio. You know, long short funds, I actually once upon a time used to manage a long short fund myself. And, you know, it's one of those type of investment strategies that I think that a lot of investors sometimes don't know what they're getting into because it, as you said, it, it really depends on what that net exposure is. I mean, some long short funds could be almost completely long oriented and have very few shorts and they technically are long short. How do you manage risk? Do you have a risk target in mind? We do. What we target is managing the beta of the portfolio to be about 0.5, so about half the risk of MSCI world. And our exposure is constant. We are $100 long and $30 short. And the reason for that, Rust, is that you know, it's hard to guarantee returns, right? You can't guarantee returns. But when somebody is making allocation to a fund, they really need to have clear understanding of the risk they're taking. And we think by being really having a lot of clarity around the risk profile of the fund, we can make sure that we don't surprise people with the returns that we generate. Hallelujah. I totally agree with that. All right. So we kind of teased at the beginning is we're going to talk about quantitative investing. And in short, how do you define quantitative investing? To me, quantitative investing is fairly simple. It's about taking an idea or concept and applying it in a systematic way. So I would say quantitative investing to me is basically systematic investing. And I don't draw a distinction between the two. So our role of as quantitative investors is to take what people are doing from a fundamental standpoint and then apply that systematically across a wide range of stocks. And what technology allows us to do is basically do that, right? I mean, if you go back to Graham and Dodd, the thing that Ben Graham said was the role of the analyst is not to collect the data. The role of the analyst is to assign the weight to each of the different factors. And that's basically what we're doing to me as active managers is basically saying, here's, I collect all this data for the stocks. Now I need to come up with the weight to place on each factor. And that to me is what quantitative investing is all about. I mean, I love the discipline and sort of the comprehensiveness of approach of a quantitative investment style. You know, once upon a time, I had just a real quick story here. It was back in the 90s. I was also doing money manager due diligence at that time. And I went into an office in California, it was in the Bay Area, and they were a quant manager and gave a, just a fabulous presentation. But at the end, they said, do you want to meet the uh, our research team? And I said, yeah, that would be great. And they honestly, in their conference room, had this one wall that was a curtain and they opened up their curtain and it was just rows and rows of computers. It was so rigged because it was like, you know, all the computers had the lights going on and off. It's like nobody needed right. that many computers, but it was a pretty cool show, I have to admit. <laughs> yeah, right, right now, we all you have is banks or servers. But, you know, that's the misconception, right? The work is coming up with the idea. Mm -hmm. So the computer just does the work for you. But the work is actually coming up with the idea. And, the, you know, there's... I'm in the camp of there's no such thing as artificial intelligence. It's all about the, the way you set up the problem and the rules that you develop. Well, I guess that sort of ties into my next question. So I think there's also a perception that a lot of quantitative management approaches, they're bringing in all this big data and alternative data that traditional money managers aren't using. Do you bring alternative data into your work? We do. You know, I don't know whether it's alternative. So for example, you know, reading Twitter feeds, reading mm -hmm. news articles, reading Facebook posts, that's alternative data, right? That's something we've been doing for quite a while now. 10 years ago, you couldn't do that. The technology didn't exist 
for you to do that in a cost-effective way. Now you can. And so text passing, broadly speaking, I think is, is widely used by font managers and used by us. We've also experimented with using data on, for example, supply chains. And we haven't found it particularly useful, but that doesn't mean we're going to stop looking. Yeah. Same thing for looking at data on, on a transactional level. So credit card data 10 years ago was very uncommon. Five years ago, it was very expensive. Now it's, it's quite cheap. But getting the data is easy. All the art and the science to some degree, and using the word science loosely, yeah. it's about processing the data and figuring out how to incorporate into your signal because credit card data is a good example of something that is useful in certain sectors. But if you're trying to figure out what's going on with utilities, if you're trying to figure out what's going on with industrials, it's not very useful. Yeah. But if you're doing it in technology, if you're doing it with banking, it can be quite useful. Interesting. All right. So let's shift gears a little bit. And we, we talked about risk earlier. So as an investment manager, somebody managing portfolios and strategies, how do you define risk? You mentioned earlier a beta measure. Is that your only measure or how else do you define it? Yeah, so I, the first thing I try to do is kind of draw the distinction between beta and volatility. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you, if you think about portfolios, you can think about low beta portfolios as having low volatility and a high beta portfolio as having high volatility. Now, a low beta stock can be a high volatility stock. It just means that it doesn't move much with the market. But if you build a portfolio of low beta stocks, what you generally see is that low beta stocks have a much better risk-adjusted return and often the same return as a high beta stock. And this was you know, noted back in the early 70s by Nobel Prize winners like Myron Scholes. And it's an anomaly that's persisted now for 50 years. So it's yeah. a very systematic anomaly that we exploit in our strategy. Now, how should financial advisors think differently about risk? And first of all, you, you earlier talked about as a portfolio manager, you have some degree of control over a portfolio risk. And I think relative volatilities tend to persist and beta does. But a lot of advisors love, and I get it from an intuitive standpoint, drawdown, historical drawdowns. Now, I'm already just going to bias my question here. But personally, while I completely understand the intuitive appeal of drawdown, a lot of times those securities that have the worst drawdown numbers already had their drawdown. Some of that risk has been squeezed out. Am I on the right track thinking that? How do you think about drawdown? How should financial advisors think about drawdown? Yeah, so I think about drawdown in terms of the downside risk for a stock or the skewness of a stock. And people definitely overpay for skewness. So you're better off buying stocks with low drawdown risk. Yeah. So, for example, if you think about a stock, you can have upside volatility or downside volatility, right? Drawdown is downside volatility. People overpay for upside volatility. So, buying stocks with low drawdown can be a good strategy. That's very different than looking at strategy drawdown, which I think is what advisors are looking at. So, yeah. your comment, I think, relates to stock-specific drawdown. But I think as a strategy, the problem with looking at strategy drawdown is often you don't have enough history, right? Mm -hmm. You often only have, I mean, the most strategies have 10 or 15-year histories. And in the last 10 years or 15 years, you haven't seen many opportunities to actually measure the risk management potential of a strategy. So, I think it's something you should look at. I think Sotino ratio, which tries to capture this as a measure, is something you should look at. When we talk about the performance of our fund, we do look at that ratio. 
because unlike the sharp ratio, which treats volatility as symmetric, the Sortino ratio looks at upside volatility versus downside volatility and its return divided by downside volatility. So I think it's it's a useful measure to look at, but I don't think it's sort of the key measure. I think it's one in several dimensions you should be looking at. One thing I forgot to say, I forgot to define drawdown, of course. I think most listeners probably know, but you know, drawdown is just how much an investment might lose off its peak. So let's say um, the high water price for a strategy or security is 100 and it drops to 80, that means a drawdown is 20%. That's just what it would mean in that case, which in some ways is a little more intuitive answer than trying to understand what a standard deviation is for, for some investors. But well, speaking of standard deviation, I know Robin has a question. Right. I did want to jump in <laughs> and ask. Thanks for that segue. I do want to ask you about the VIX index. Can you describe what the index is and, and how you use it? And also, how would you recommend that advisors monitor and use the VIX? So I think of the VIX index as the cost of hedging a portfolio, because the way the VIX index is calculated is it looks at the price of options. And from the price of the options, it backs out the future volatility of the stock market. So it reflects two things, right? It reflects what the consensus expectation is going to be for the volatility of the market. And the second thing it reflects is the uncertainty surrounding that estimate. So if the VIX is really high in the 20s, that means there's a lot of uncertainty around the future. The VIX is low, like it is now, 16, there's less uncertainty. And if you think about the end of the last business cycle, you know, you saw VIX numbers around 12, which means that the consensus expectation is that the VIX is around, that the world is very certain. The one thing advisors should remember a bit is that volatility is mean reverting. So it always returns to its long run average. So if you're in an environment where the VIX is really low, when you think about fund performance, when you're looking at drawdowns, realize that you're looking at an environment where you haven't seen much uncertainty. So I think the VIX is a really useful way to capture the level of uncertainty that we're facing at that time and going forward. So you really need to kind of think about if the VIX is at 16 right now, how are your clients going to benefit? How the portfolio is going to perform if the VIX goes back to 22 or 20, which is just long run average? Or if the VIX is at 35, realize that sooner or later it's going to go to 20 in the next year, and then how are your portfolios positioned to benefit from that? Volatility is amazingly been reverting. That's one thing that you really need to kind of bake into your short-run uh, intermediate-term portfolio strategy. Well, related to volatility, I also wanted to ask you about something that we've talked a bit about on the show, and that is the gamification of the markets. So platforms like Robinhood and what's happening with the meme stocks, and I was interested in finding out from you how market gamification has changed the way that analytic investors invests. Well, it hasn't changed our investment philosophy, but we've had to recognize that there are certain sectors of the market which are behaving very differently than they have historically, right? So, you know, the nice thing about platforms like Robinhood is you can actually download the data as to what types of stocks, what types of investors are investing on these platforms. And what you see from there is a really, really consistent footprint. What you'll see is that the type of stocks these investors are buying are really, really high beta stocks. They're stocks with really poor recent performance and they're stocks with really, really low prices. And what this tells us is those stocks aren't being driven by fundamentals. 
So what we've done is we made a concerted effort to try and identify those stocks and say these stocks aren't factor driven. They're being driven, you know, for lack of a better term, they're being driven by something else, you know, what Keynes would call animal spirits. And so these are stocks we stay away from because this is not something that we have a comparative advantage in, in terms of forecasting their future return or assessing the outlook. So we stay away from them. So I would say what the big change for us is to recognize in the past year, especially that there are certain stocks where we don't have any insight and others have very strong opinions on these stocks and we should stay away from them and stick to the portfolios, stick up portfolios in funds and stocks where we have more insight. Just to restate what I think I heard is, again, some of those stocks have been very popular. You don't even short them. You just stay away from them. We stay away from them. So if it's a meme stock, if it's a particular high beta stock with low price, if it's getting a lot of media coverage, if it's a high level of news activity, we'll actually flag that because we use a linguistics engine to read all the news and we'll stay away from the stocks. Let's talk about volatility a little more because I think there's obviously a common impression that people have that the relationship between volatility and expected returns in the market or actual returns in the market is kind of linear, that the more volatile of a security, the higher the return you're going to get. But you sort of already kind of talked about that a little bit. That's not always the case. Could you talk a little bit about how lower volatility stocks tend to outperform higher volatility stocks over time? Yeah, there's really two reasons for that. One is kind of behavioral, right? Because if you think about a lottery ticket, as a ridiculous example, lottery tickets are poor investments, right? They have negative expected value. But a high beta stock is very much like a lottery ticket. There's a small chance of a really big outcome. So people are willing to overpay for that, which is why high beta stocks generally have worse than average returns. The second feature that helps with low vol investing is you know, a fairly simple one, but it's mathematical, which is that if you lose 50% of your investment, you need to go up 100% to get back to even. So mathematicians refer to this as kind of the volatility drag. And so what people don't realize is that if you have a portfolio of high-risk investments, even though you may be diversified. If the systematic risk is high, they're going up and down a lot. And that's going to reduce your long-run return. And it's something that's, you know, it's almost as certain as, as gravity. And you see, you know, I think Warren Buffett talked about this is, you know, once you understand the magic of compounding, you really learn how to create wealth and high volatility stocks because of the vol drag, they don't, the compounded return is never that high. I mean, that's always kind of a, um... A fun kind of cocktail party type question. I'm sure Raman asks this all the time too, but so let's say you have $100 and you have an investment that goes up 10% and down 10%. How much money do you have? And it's not $100. And then we'll take the same security. It's up 50% now, down 50%. So many people want to say, you're back to $100. No, you're not. Right. <laughs> you're yeah. way down on the second example. Exactly. But the average return is the same, right? But the average return is the same. It's zero. I think that is the magic of investing, but keeping volatility always at the forefront of your investment strategy. How, when it comes to quantitative investing, how do you bring in investor sentiment? Is that something you quantify and try to bring into investment decision-making? We do. So I, I think investment sentiment is basically what makes investing so challenging, right? Because what I think of as sentiment is the fact that preferences is change over time. Right. So yeah. in certain environments, people can value stocks with high growth rates. In certain environments, people can value stocks with low growth rates. In certain environments, people value cheapness. And part of what we have to do as investors is identify these shifts in sentiment. 
And what we found in our research is that sentiment tends to persist. So the factors that have been rewarded in the last year tend to be persist over the next year. So we use that to basically scan the market, analyze which factors have been rewarded in the prior year, and then emphasize that in our portfolios. Now, now it's not exactly the prior year. We use the last month. We use the last three years. But I think recognizing that sentiment shifts is really important because that's our role as active managers is to identify what's in favor. There's a story I love to tell when, you know, when people ask Keynes about how he thought about investing. And he said, investing is like picking the winner of a beauty contest. It doesn't matter who you think is particularly good looking. Or it's about recognizing what others think is good looking. Yeah. And sentiment is all about that. I think kind of my own, own view, and I guess it shapes what, what I often am writing about or speaking about, or even coloring investment decisions is looking at something like investor sentiment. Like you talked about volatility earlier, it tends to revert back to the mean. So if investor sentiment is really bullish, I tend to be more cautionary. And if sentiment's really bearish, I tend to be more optimistic. And if volatility is low, I'm usually saying expect more volatility. And if volatility is high, I usually say, well, things should settle down. I guess it's always kind of bringing it back to the middle, I guess. The trick there is the speed of reversion, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about when volatility was low in the mid-2000s, it stayed low for five or six years. So I think that's why scenario planning is very useful to know if I'm building a portfolio that's doing well right now, but if vol were to spike, do I have enough protection in my portfolio to let my client live through that? And I think that's the hard thing. And that's where a scenario, thinking about your portfolio in terms of scenarios is really, really important. Well, we've talked a lot of philosophy here, but Rob and I want to get rich now. So what? <laughs> how do you currently view the global markets? And has this view changed much this year so far? What is your outlook? Yeah, I think it, it has changed. The difficulty with your question, Rusty, is that you know time is a kind of a, a weird concept when you think of this year, right? Yeah. Because we are about we are about halfway into the year, and when we started the year, it looks like everything was going really, really well. And now we've had a little bit of a hiccup in terms of the rate of reopening. We had historically high valuations. We are at a level of optimism that we've probably never experienced before in terms of not only consumer optimism but also investor optimism. So I think the point that we're in right now calls for a more conservative portfolio than historically. It calls for a portfolio where you need to pay a lot of attention to what I call interest rate sensitivity. Equities, people don't realize certain equity securities have lots of interest rate sensitivity. And it's something you need to manage because with the potential high inflation environment, this is something you need to be aware of in your portfolio. And I think the last thing is, you know, we all tend to look backwards in our rearview mirror and holding inflation hedges, like holding exposure to GSCI as a security was really popular in the late 90s because people remembered inflation. But now nobody thinks about inflation and nobody thinks about holding exposure to commodities as a hedge in their portfolios, right? That's all changed. So I think those are some things that you've got to start thinking about when you're building a portfolio. Before we let you go here, because this has just been a really great conversation, but I want to steal some of Rusty's favorite questions. Oh, come on. <laughs> so first one is, what do you think are the attributes that make a good financial advisor? 
Well, I'm not a financial advisor, so what I'm going to give you is sort of an is an opinion, right? So I think the the biggest challenge with a financial advisor is it's almost you're like a bartender. But somebody comes up to you and says, give me a drink. And you need to understand what they're looking for, what flavors are they looking for. And it's not about having a questionnaire. It's about listening really acutely and being able to discern what the client's needs are and how much pain they can tolerate if they have a negative event in the market, what the investment horizon is, and being able to understand that in a very subtle way. So I think it's a really, really hard job. And I really have a lot of appreciation for people who are willing to walk clients through the difficult times and also come up with an allocation that allows them to live through the difficult times. So I think the role of the advisor is really to do that, to understand the client's needs. And it's a lot more than filling out a questionnaire because those are the easy answers. But, you know, so it's very much like when someone comes to you and say, give me a good drink. You have to first talk to them to understand what kind of drink are they looking for. I'm sure a financial advisor with good bartending skills would have some pretty happy clients too. <laughs> <laughs> well, one more for you on the flip side of that. What do you think are the attributes of a good investor? An investor really needs to have a clear philosophy. I think there are many different investors, right? But being able to promise what type of profile from a return and risk standpoint, you're trying to deliver to clients, I think is really important because I think if you're able to provide a consistent return profile, a consistent risk profile, advisors can figure out how to use that in their portfolio, right? If you think about our fund, we have a pretty small portion in people's portfolios. We're 10 to 15% typically. We're never more than that. So we are like the bitter in your cocktail. We make the cocktail better, but we're not the major part of the cocktail. I think you put a lot more bitter in your cocktail than I do. <laughs> <laughs> but you know you need to figure out how to use this but i think yeah. every investor needs to be clear about what their role is going to be in the client's portfolio and then the clients can figure out and the advisors can figure out how to use it but i think that's the key part about being a good investor there's so much information to sift through as a financial professional and obviously you go through a lot and you said the key to successful investing is, is knowing how to process that information. For financial advisors, do you have any recommendations that you could provide or to investors that people should be reading or listening to? Yeah, I'm not a big believer in kind of constant viewing of investment information. I'm a big fan of some of the research that people like Maya Statman at University of Santa Clara have done on investment portfolios and where they find that a portfolio that's revised less frequently tends to do better. So I think being conscious of the type of information you're looking at is really, really important. I think figuring out how to remove noise from your decision-making. So books like Daniel Kahneman's book, I think Noise, I think is, is really, really good. I think understanding that and trying to figure out how to incorporate that in your decision-making is very, very important. I'm an avid reader. So the other book I like is a book by Adam Grant called Think Again. If you haven't read that, Rusty and Robin, I highly recommend it. It kind of causes you to question the way you think. I think the way you're going to have a successful investment outcome is to make carefully considered investment decisions, not reactionary ones. Because investing is not about the frequency of decision. It's about making good strategic decisions. And thinking about a lot about before you make the decision is really, really important. Because the reason you hire investment managers is they're making the short-run decisions, right? I'm making the decision to stay away from certain types of stocks. And 
you're making the decision as to which portfolio managers you're going to hire. And I think that's much more of a strategic decision. And you need to be really careful that it's made in a noise-free environment. That's good stuff. I think in addition to our Spotify playlist, Rusty, we need a reading list. Reading I know. <laughs> I know we do. We'll create one. Great idea. Yeah, we can. Well, Hern, it's been really great to have you on the show today. How can listeners stay in touch and learn more about you and, and more about the 361 Fund? The best way for the 361 Fund is their website, 361 Fund website. So I'd highly recommend that. We do have you know, frequent webcasts and the occasional podcasts that where we talk about the strategy and our views. So that is the best way to connect with myself and the rest of the Analytic Investors team. Well, Ren, thanks for coming on the show. I actually have one last question. It's a little more technical too, because you mentioned this earlier and I thought it was really juicy. I just want to dive just a smidge more into it. You said the typical allocation to the 361 Global Long Short Fund was about 10 to 15%. Where are people taking that from? A little bit from the stock side, a little bit from the fixed income side, or I mean, just a little more insight on that, the typical allocation. Yeah, the risk profile of the fund is pretty close to that of a balanced fund of a 50-50 or 60-40 stocks cash, the stocks bond fund. So we tend to get kind of a proportionate reduction in people's fixed income and their equity, and they allocate to us as that alternative. And they're really looking for us to behave very differently than the rest of their portfolio. And if you look at the correlation, you'll see that the fund has a very low correlation with traditional asset classes. And that's kind of where the benefit comes in. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Been great to have you. And glad you got that last question in, Rusty, but we are going to wrap (laughs) it up now. That is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Stay balanced and stay the course. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.